June 12, 2016, is a date forever etched in the minds of many Americans. That night, a gunman claimed the lives of 49 people and wounded 53 others inside a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. It was also the night a 25-year-old former professional cyclist decided to come out to his family and friends, not only to be true to himself, but to give others the strength to do the same. I knew I couldn't go back. Ages your you just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to just look back. even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I could not. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. We cannot wait for a few folks in a tiny building on the East Coast to tell us how we should love. 27-year-old Kit Carson learned early how to overcome challenges. At eight years old, he was diagnosed with ADHD, isolating himself from his friends at school, and then chronic stress disorder in his early 20s, which nearly ended his life. Yet each time Kit was faced with a problem, he would confront it head-on and turn his obstacles into an opportunity to help others who were going through the same experience as he did. This is Kit's story. Uh, all right, this is uh, Kit Carson, Santa Monica, 2018. <clears throat> That's it. When did I meet you? I remember where Four, I met you. 14, 15? You were 15. PCH oh, yeah. on a bike ride yeah. with your dad. Mm, sounds about right. The crazy PCH. Crazy. Remember you, that? I mean, what responsible father wouldn't take their 15-year-old son out on a bicycle with traffic? I think you at, needed it, though, didn't you? Clearly. At 15 years old, I yeah. think you were, you were needing to be riding. Need you had a too lot much energy. of energy. Too much. Do you remember those the Energizer Bunny uh, commercials? You know the the, the battery. Did, did you? Did I you think they based that off of me. Yeah, mm. you. I just remember we're just this ball of energy, mm. fifteen, but just like so much energy. If we did this interview yes. like ten years ago, I probably would have asked to do it on top of the table with me just screaming. Let's go to the Orlando shooting uh, a few years ago, mm -hmm. and just take me back to that day uh, and, and we were starting the story about what happened to you because that was a, a pivotal day for you in your life. Yeah. Everything sort of took another turn for you that day. Completely. The following day of the Orlando shooting was Pride in Los Angeles and at that time I was working on a photo series uh, talking to folks about their coming out journey. Mm. It was incredibly inspiring and hearing all these just often like gut-wrenching uh, processes of coming out to friends and family or your church or local network. And, and so finally, when I had no uh, intention of coming out, um, but then the Orlando shooting had happened and I was feeling very um, at arm's length with the LGBTQ community. And I was surrounded by that evening, I was, I went out you know, hit the bars with some friends. And, you know, I ended up going back with a number of people who, when the news started rolling in about what had happened in Florida, I, I just kind of watched them glaze over at what they were hearing. 
and they weren't affected in any way. It was just kind of like, all right, you know, that happened. And I felt incredibly uh, angry that they didn't feel like they could be more proactive or that they just couldn't feel human. I think that they were so, uh, they're prioritizing putting on a show for one another about how cool they are, what, what, you know, what they're wearing or what they're, what country they're going to go visit next week. And I was just like, what, where am I? Like, who, who am I with? Like, this is completely wrong. Something's not right here. And so I left immediately and I just couldn't figure out what was my next move. And my dad called me and I had actually come out to him and my mom a couple months prior. And he said, you know, hey son, uh, how are you? And I said, dad, I'm, uh, I'm not good. And he said, why don't you come meet me over uh, at Flaming Saddles? Because one of his old friends runs the joint. And so I go and I walk and turn the corner and there's my father and you know, his cycling kit and he rode over and uh, he sees me and just kind of gives me this big fatherly hug. And um, you, know, my, you know my dad and my dad loves taking selfies and he goes and he clicks one and um, that day I was, I was still processing the trauma of what had happened, you know, to the community and what was still being processed and, you know, how is their pride parade where everybody's like celebrating and yet there's this deep, deep devastating loss at the same time. And it was just so contrasty. So finally I, um, as a person in their mid twenties does, I went on to social media and just kind of wrote up a little thing and used that photo that my dad had taken of him and I and decided to come out to the world. And how did you come into the queer community when you say you came into the... So my, my journey into the queer community, you know, when I was younger, I raced bicycles up until I was... Well, that's how I know you. That's, yeah. And that's how we know each other. So, right. you know, up and, until 21... And let's just get, set the record here. You weren't just any kind of bike rider. You were a national champion at the age of 16. You, you had a, a national jersey. And for people who uh, know cycling, if you ever become a national champion, you get to wear the, the flag of, bars. of the country, the bars on your uniform. And mm -hmm. that's something that you did uh, as a young cyclist. Uh, you were destined to be... Uh, a world well you world you were world class but you were destined to be a professional cyclist that was your road you took yep. all of that energy as a kid that you had with that was the trajectory that was where you were were going so i just wanted to yeah. you know set that up that that's okay so sorry continue no but so when i when i was racing i i kind of had the blinders on mm. um and i think as most professional athletes are taught you know stay in your lane mm. and so i didn't devote any time other than professional cycling to develop myself and what my personal interests were. And I was, you know, my identity was not based off of, you know, what I actually loved and who I cared about and, you know, what my priorities were. It was, you know, the voices of my sponsors, my teams, my, you know, publicity folks, my team directors, coaches, like that. I was just an extension and microphone of that. Yeah. And trying to manage all of those expectations and voices you kind of drown out all the other things you know and and for me that was my sexuality it, it 
it wasn't a question. Were you aware that of, of your sexuality or did you literally just shut it out and just not even deal with it? Shut it out. I, you know, I had dated women exclusively up until I was 21. Um, and it just kind of felt, it was normal. It was what everyone else was doing. It was the expectation, you know, you're, uh, did it ever occur to you that you were attracted to men before that age? Um, it didn't, it, for me, I think that, you know, there would be times where I, you know, that's a, that's a handsome looking fella or something like that. But you, right. there, aside from that, like, you know, flash pan moment, it doesn't like, I couldn't ever see myself doing anything more than just, you know, looking at that for half a second right and then but maybe admiring a good-looking guy like you like any any anybody would when you see a good-looking person in general yeah right it just yeah it's just like you know handsome beautiful gorgeous right oh that's an elegant whatever yeah and so that kind of like was it the conversation was done and so once i retired from cycling at 21 now i had all this time to process and you were probably for the first time in your life uh, like you said, it was the first time that you got out of the lane mm-hmm. and kind of went, hold on a second. I've been going this way, but there was this, all this, all this other world stuff. out there. Yeah. But I, I want to go back to how cycling really did save you, though, because it does sound, when you're talking, it's sort of like, oh, cycling put you down this path and it sort of narrowed your scope of life. But if it wasn't for cycling, yeah. in a way, I'd have you nothing. could have gone off on a completely on the wrong track. Yeah. So go back to when you're 13 years old uh, or even younger yeah. and you were diagnosed with... So I, at eight years old, I was diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And, you know, you couldn't pay me to sit still for more than five minutes at a time. And so I just run around and I disrupt everything. And, you know, I was the pariah in this, you know, the classical education system because, you know, well... You know, my child is there and they're, you know, learning and trying to further their education. You have this, you know, ticking time bomb that's setting off every 15 minutes. Like, I was the uh, definition of a disruption. Would we also say the definition of out of control? Completely. And were you aware of that when you were a kid that you were... Is normal. It it just felt normal to you. Well, to me, it felt like the world was just moving slower than what I could process it as. You know, it's like when you see... um, you know, that, uh, the Marvel movies and you've got like, you know, or the matrix when everything kind of like, of course you can, yeah, just, where it's just like, you know, everything just kind of moves slower and you're everybody just like, else thinks you're going fast, but you're just like, I'm just going speed. my, I'm just going my speed. And I'm like, yeah. you know, here and there and, duh, duh, duh. and so you kind of, you do that enough times, but people obviously clearly didn't mesh with the speed that I was, um, moving at. In three years, I was put on, I think, around five different medications. And it was anything from patches, you know, like a nicotine patch to pills and, you know, creams that you'd put on your skin so that it absorbs, like stuff that didn't have names yet. Um, And so I was kind of this like guinea pig, but also just trying to figure it out. And Did it work? Uh, no. (laughs) No. (laughs) To be honest, like, I mean, I remember one of the, the medications that I was put on the directions of how much I needed to actually be, my dosage was never communicated properly. So instead of taking, you know, a quarter, I was taking a full dosage of this thing. So in third grade, come around, you know, noontime, I was basically narcoleptic and I just like pass out at my desk. And so what was happening was like my brain was being so over uh, stimulated from this stimulant that I just I clocked out and I was done. Um, and so by the time that I was 11, I was you know, talking to my parents. And I'm like, God, I 
I can't, I just, I can't do this. This is, I'd rather be. You didn't feel yourself. You, of course not. And you, 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 you must have just resented having to take these things because of how it made you feel. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, not only am I just like the class pariah because no one could put it, you know, get a handle on me, but then now I'm also the kid who's force feeding himself medication in the school's nurse's office, you know, just to, you know, even feel even more furthered from uh, normal. And so it was, it was a terrible time. Like I had no identity, hardly any friends, rocky relationships with those around me. And, you know, my only allies were really just my parents who didn't know anything other than this is the medication like pathway. This and, is the option. And, and, and the whole idea of having this attention deficit disorder was also, I mean, we think it's been around, I mean, it has been around forever, but it wasn't something that was really talked about. I mean, or, or that people could properly diagnose or treat. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, my mom who eventually went on to be diagnosed with adult ADHD, like their treatment as kids was uh, the belt and a ruler. Like yeah. that is how you conform someone and you never into got this that. box. No, no, never. I was raised in a no hitting household. Good. Uh, but you know, it, it was uh, the, reaction to the diagnosis I find is often worse than the diagnosis itself of like being told you have ADHD and like what ADHD actually is. And so for me, you know, I, I at 11 years old, I just had to remove myself from that, that process because I was just lost and not myself and it was horrible. And so finally I, I cold Turkey just kind of got off it against doctor's orders they're like this this when you kid say you needs got to be, off it you you just said stop I'm not you said you decided yeah i was like mom and dad i can't do this i'd rather be myself and crazy psycho yeah than not knowing who i'm going to be tomorrow okay and, and how did they react when you said that uh my mom was my biggest advocate in every school meeting you know she my dad would go to the you know uh, PTA meetings and fight for, you know, me. And, and it was just like it, having parents like that who are so incredibly supportive, it is such a gift and I acknowledge it and I love them for that. So when you were that young kid, yep. you'd never felt alone in terms of having their support. I mean, you, you said you struggled with, with holding friends and having young people around you that, that you could identify with, but as far as your parents went, you always have felt like they're being there for you. I mean, yes, you you don't feel alone because you have mom and dad, but then at the same time, like at 11 years old, to only have mom and dad, it's kind of like, it sucks. Like yeah. you want to go out and play and do stuff and be a kid, right? Yeah. Not, you know, I can trace the floor of, you know, the doctor's office on a piece of paper from sitting in there for just countless hours of my childhood. Hmm. You know, you're just there and you're just sitting and listening and, being told questions and it's just like it's a, that was my life and finally at you know drudging through middle school and I was a DNF student you know I C's were A's like yes he, he's average thank god um and then finally at 13 my dad went to the junior world cycling championships at the uh now StubHub Center in Carson, California. And it was for the Junior World Championships. And he went just to watch. And he used to race when he was a kid. And he completely got inspired. And I think that I get my, you know, I get affected deeply by big moments. And I actively try and change. And so his was, I'm inspired by this. I'm going to get back into cycling. And so we just started riding recreationally for fun and doing small little criteriums and stuff. 
And then he thinks to himself, I should, what if I just got my son into this? And we had tried every sport at that point, like rock climbing, every all-American sport, you know, you name, all the weird, crazy things uh, I just wasn't into. And he said, I remember, Kit, I don't care if you like it, but you're gonna try it. And so we went to the Encino Velodrome bike track, and there I am in a white t-shirt and my mom's spandex. Oh, that must have been a sight. <sighs> Your mother's spandex? Oh, yeah. Kit, please don't wear that uniform again. Well, Okay. Well, don't tell okay, me what, you know don't what? Tell me do what whatever do. you want. You know what? <laughs> do whatever you want. I live my but life here. I, is, it, is there a photo of that? Because that just it, sounds, there is literally a photo on my website. That There's a photo wild. of the first day of me on a rental Fuji bike, white shirt, rental hat, and, and my mother's spandex. spandex. Yeah. So I, I remember, you know, we go and it's a free kids clinic that they held on a Thursday night in the summer of 2004. And I remember, you know, going through the clinic and you know, it's, it went as good as you could possibly think it could. And I just remember getting off and I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, I think I found my sport. And I was so excited. And I just started riding from there. And, and you were just instantly good. Hooked. Right? One, I think later talking to my dad, you know, one of his inspirations for putting me on the track was uh, Michael Phelps, who yeah. I, swimmer? Yes. Maybe you've heard of him? I, I've um, heard of him. I think he won, was it 19 gold medals? Something like that. It's relevant. Um, and so he, uh, he also ADHD diagnosed and his mom went on to talk, you know, about her process of getting her son through, you know, ADHD diagnosis and his activity levels. And she remarked how the swim lanes helped him uh, focus. Right. So you have not only, you know, the ability to go as fast and as hard as you want, but there's also some assimilation of consistency. Well, and to me, order. it sounds like because you mentioned it before about staying in your lane. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like you've got all this energy. Yep. And if you don't put blinders on, if you don't swim down a lane, if you yep. don't go round the track in a lane, then all of that energy can go this way. And it's so scattered, it's wasted. So I in a way, I, you went like this. You went, yeah, I can go down that path. And, you know, cycling, at least on the track, you know, it is lanes. You've yes. got the pole lane, you've got the hold blue your line, lane. hold your lane. And hold so it, line, for yeah. me, I think that, like, at least in the world that I come from, you know, self-inflicted borders are the best way for me to, uh, you know, proceed forward. If I have someone coming in being like, this is right and this is wrong, mm. well, that that's your interpretation of the right. law. You know, for me, if I can put up, you know, the guardrails for me to continue to push forward, such as, you know, like lanes on a velodrome, yeah. then I can see, and it's like, I don't need you to tell me I can see it for myself. My first national championship was when I was 16 years old. Which you won. Which I won. And you were off the drugs. I had been off the drugs exclusively since I was 11. For me as a kid, one of my favorite things was, you know, when your brain kind of was going as fast as I did. There's, I was always thinking, I was, my mind was always elsewhere. I could never kind of focus on one thing. And one thing that I always used to drain it out was, you know, stuff like music or just turning it up really loud just to kind of like drown everything out. And so one cool thing about the bike that I love very early on is wind. Mm. When, you, when you ride fast, then the, you know, the wind that goes by your ears, it kind of creates like a sound mm. so the faster i went the, the louder it went you know the louder i and oh, the less i could really hear interesting uh, and so analogy. for me i was i was just like you know i want to drown out as much as i can here and that can only be created through going speed. faster yeah well speed was something you were good at 
So, trying. so when did you figure, okay, this is the path I'm taking. I'm going to become a professional cyclist. Was that after you won the national championships at 16? Or? Um, you know, I think that I, I, I was more focused at 16 on trying to create some thing of an identity mm. for myself. Cause I, you know, now I'm, I'm in high school and was I, was that easier for you with your friends than middle school? Yes. And no. I mean, here's the thing. You spend your, the majority of your childhood in such isolation that you'll do almost anything just to be part of anything. Right. And so for me to be part of the cycling community was incredible. Like, so now, you know, here I am, you know, racing around the world and traveling and have national championships. But at the same time, I'm also not part of the you know high school social construct mm. you know did I, it take you out of that in a way and make it very much more, so. so made it more difficult it, it it made me ironically i fell deeper into a community but you spend only minutes or drops of time in your week yeah. devoted to that community yeah. um, where you're actually surrounded by people at like the races or training sessions the rest of it you have to kind of like make your way through for me you know, the public education system, you know, teachers, tutors, So friends. where your school friends were spending more time out of school connecting, you were disconnecting was, and going to the track. It was, and then be, it, so you were living like these two different worlds. Yeah, and it, it, um, it was actually, it was challenging. Yeah. Like I, listen, I talked to friends who I went to high school with that were, you know, part of the popular crowd or, you know, in, in this world. and. I always go to them, like I didn't go to prom or grad night, didn't go to a single party my entire high school stint. Um, not you know, one party? Not one. Uh, you know, it because was- Because you weren't invited or? No, because I just, I was racing, I was training, I right. was traveling. You I, weren't available. Of course, my, you know, my senior year alone, I was, I missed like 12 weeks. I was gone. Wow. And so Did I- Did you get through high school? Did you manage to pass and- I, graduated with honor roll and you no, know like you almost really? straight A's like it was crazy so I, the C student in middle school who couldn't focus mm -hmm. gets into cycling becomes a national champion and then graduates high school with honors yeah oh how times have changed so at 18 my parents and I we had a, a conversation I, I'm very lucky to be one of those where my parents said kit we don't care how you learn we just cared that you learn and so I kind of ran with that and I, I was like, all right, I want to, I want to go down this professional cycling path and see and where this can take me. you had ability. You know, had, had. At that stage, where were you nationally? Were you still a, a was, top? I was coming off of, you know, two back-to-back uh, -back junior world championship teams. I was, you know, in talks for like world cups for the first time. I was traveling around the world it was i i felt like i was i was part of it i was in it and i was too far to come out of it and so mm -hmm. i i was just there and i was like all right i'm gonna continue down this path and in the meantime i'm gonna continue try and you know provoke some of my un other interests and so at that time it was also television so i was interning at mtv in the spring of like 24 2009 mm -hmm. and um you know i i did my best to manage all that and also make money through my sponsors and you know work incredibly hard what i didn't know you know uh foresight was that i i was kind of actively suppressing 
a lot of development in my own personal life, which by just distracting yourself with being busy. Yeah. You're a person who at 20 years old decides that now you want to give back. Mm -hmm. And that, that seems like a, a big turn to take at only 20 years old, considering the life that you'd had at this point where you hadn't even really worked out who you were, but you yeah. were wanting to give back. What was that about? Was that about helping other young kids who also had ADHD? Is that what the... Yeah, so when I was, um, when I was 20, I started doing some small speaking engagements with you know that families were pulling in because they knew through my parents of my ADHD story and so they were really excited and inspired the idea of you know my kid can do you something. said way back before that you were like a guinea pig and so when I was you know force feeding pills in the nurse's office of my you know elementary or middle school yeah uh, they're like oh my god my kid my kid could actually do something other than that. Mm. And so I remember the story that got me into this and it was, you know, I was talking to this family and, you know, the kid kind of, as I was talking, seemed like they were just a little blase to the words that I was saying. And it was the parents that were normally inspired because the kid doesn't, doesn't know, they just feel what they feel. And so finally, you know, after I'm talking, I'm like, you know, standing over to the side and kid comes up to me and kind of like pulls on my jacket and I lean down and and they said um I hate this medicine and I'm like what do you mean and they're like you know I I don't feel like myself in in the most simple basic way uh and I just I completely resonated with what he was saying because I felt that before and so I thought to myself you know there has to be I'm not here to question whether or not the validity of ADHD exists but I feel like the process in which we diagnose kids, uh, you know, the number one neurological disorder of diagnosis amongst children that can't be tested in blood or brain scans or, you know, anything outside of a couple questions such as, do you have a trouble, do you have trouble sitting still for copious amounts of time? Like, that's just, for me, it's crazy to think. And of course, no duh. And um, so I said, you know, there has to be some innovation around the treatment and, you know, the diagnosis process, because I feel like the treatment is often worse than the ADHD itself. So I thought, well, what worked for me? Riding my bicycle. Well, what if we just connected the two? So I partnered with my old sponsored Specialized Bicycles, which is, you know, the biggest bike brand on the planet. I said, hey, idea. What if we gave bicycles to velodrome youth programs like the one that I went to, gave them bikes and helped create opportunities and awareness for kids to treat their ADHD diagnosis with alternatives other than just medication? Like crazy. What do you think? And they completely got on board. And so we had this big launch party in at Synergy Cycles. I was there. You were there in Santa Monica and, you know, we ended up giving 10 bicycles away to the uh, Encino Velodrome Youth Program that I started at. And the Specialized Foundation now actively implements um, physical education programs through cycling for kids to treat their depression and ADHD and, you know, all sorts of mental health issues. And not to mention, it's fact-based like mm. it is proven that kids who are more active than not active have better ways to treat whatever they are going through inside their noggin you the know it does take us back to 
to the fact that you're you're a different person. Yes. Yeah, so um, you know, I I was actively traveling and racing around the world, and I felt like cycling is such a difficult sport that unless you are rationally just in love with it, it's it's too hard. You your entire life has to be devoted. There's no off button. Mm. And so for me, I felt like. Clearly, you know, I'm. I cycling was not giving me what I wanted. There were always are and have been and will be people who could pedal their bicycle much faster than I can. Um, towards the end of my my like tenure as a as a cyclist, I kind of felt like I stopped being so results based. It was very process based mm. because you there are professionals who go. 20 years without getting result like you just have to love cycling mm. at that level at that you know pain threshold it just has to kind of be your life and i knew that there was going to be a day when cycling would not be fun anymore it happens to everybody whether you're 15 or 25 or 40 someone's always told and right, what age was it for you it's 21 it was pretty clear that, you know, I needed something more. Mm. And so at 21, I, I was feeling pretty cross-eyed and burnt out. And I said, you know, I think I need to take a, a step back. And one of my sponsors, uh, Oakley Sunglasses said, hey, idea, what if you came to London with us and for five weeks and, you know, work at our Oakley safe house where we house our athletes and treat them well and hang out and celebrate and stuff like that and so for me it was like okay yeah why not he's gonna say no to that so i went and i i think i probably slept all of 10 hours over five weeks and it was just you know the craziest most amazing uh journey and did you lift out of the cycling lane and then just go straight into the marketing lane and just put managed to take all of that focus and just go down that pretty path? much i had probably like a two three month gap yeah and i needed to fill my time somehow so i went to one of my old family friends who managed a couple uh clubs around los angeles and i said hey you know if you need any work or someone to help like i'm here i'm free i'm waiting to you know go to london uh let me know if you have anything okay and so he says well you know i actually have this uh club uh on thursdays uh you could come do guest list for that. You're 21, right? Yeah, great. Okay. 21 plus guest list, checking off names, all the VIPs and whatever. And it's a gay club. Ah. I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> and um, so there I was thrown into this world of being surrounded by, you know, queer folk and drag queens and, you know, gay celebrities and the just being kind of thrown in the lexicon of that. And I'm there and I'm just like, I'm straight. Yeah. I am straight. I'm straight, straight, straight. That's it. End of the conversation. Is that what you kept telling yourself or? Um, I think, no. At that point, I started to figure out, okay, I think that there, there may be something here. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I, it was also something like queer culture is incredibly colorful and, mm. Uh, crazy. It's very similar to, you know, the school recess yard and it's the wild west and it's something that I can't control. So in order for me to control my environment and my surroundings, it's by trying to actively remove myself while also, you know, 
being involved at arm's length. So in effect, by me telling people that I was straight, I was removing the opportunity to lose control of the situation mm. because it's like, all right, this conversation ends here or I have a girlfriend or whatever excuse I could come up with at the time. Um, so, you know, that's, that's just kind of how it went. And so now I'm like going from blinders, uh, you know, cycling girlfriends, you know, this, this environment that I had never even questioned to surrounded by all these, you know, handsome gentlemen, like what, <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? Um, was it a slow process? Was it, it, it definitely took some time. Like, you know, I was still incredibly closeted, you know, the, I had a lot of fir did it first. Scare you? Did it um, I think the thing that scared me the most was so much of who I am was defined by being isolated as a kid and yeah. trying to feel like you're a part of something in a community. And I wasn't thinking about the queer community. I was thinking about the, my past and my cycling community and, you know, my family and friends and the people who I'd spent years trying to cultivate. And I thought, oh my God, like this, this could jeopardize that. Do you think that the reason you worked so hard at Oakley and you became this workaholic was after that experience maybe oh if i just work really really hard and shut all of this out and leave you know don't deal with all of that right now uh, i can just sort of forge down this path and because that that took you to also to another soul-searching place right the the work you you were almost boasting with your co-workers about the lack of sleep you had and mm -hmm. how hard you were working you're not dealing with also now yourself. I was suppressing quite a bit of stuff, trying to drown the noise in my head by just you know, working. Once again, you're like shutting your, or focusing your brain on one thing and shutting out dealing with some demons. Yeah, big demons. And, and then it gets to a breaking point, right? You just keep going and going and going. And yeah. sleep deprivation, so so focused on work what what ended up happening was in 2013 i was in a meeting uh with some co-workers and the room started to spin and it it was the first time that i ever had a panic attack and so i i'm at work and so i'm like i don't feel right so i'm going and i leave the building and i'm just doing laps trying to walk it off and my brain just was turning off and i couldn't create you know order in my head and couldn't complete sentences and the room was shifting around and you know i it, it was horrible and this lasted for days and so couldn't sleep because of it couldn't sleep i'd wake up i was suffering from um you know panic attacks you know mid mid rem cycle like it was horrible and so i remember just waking up one day and you know thinking that it was all over and then it happened again and and so i was like all right i i think this is it so i got up my front door and i started walking towards oncoming traffic and i said all right this is what you were gonna just take your life? I was, that was it. Yeah, I couldn't control. I couldn't ha figure out how to turn it off. Jeez. This crazy feeling. And so I said, "Well, the only there's one way to turn it off." So as I'm walking, 
towards oncoming traffic, I get a phone call from my mother of all people. And I'm like, oh, uh, the timing of the call. Oh my God. My mom, she, uh, what did she say? She was just checking in, you know, normal. And, oh, is uh, everything okay? Yeah, how, hey, how son, are you? What are you? What's up? Sounds like you're near a road. Uh. So the moment I hear her voice, I like sober up. I start to, oh, I can, the world That's what is, moms are for. Yeah. They're really just like, <gasps> yeah. um, and I, uh, I went into therapy and he says, Kit, you know, tell me about your, your lifestyle now. And I said, are you stressed out? And I'm incredibly like I'm working 20 hour days and I'm doing all this stuff and Oakley and left cycling and I'm kind of just putting all my cards on the table for this one thing. And he says, you are at war and you haven't completed basic training. And I was like, what? And he says, you know, within a three month period, you've, you know, you did the whole, you moved out, you got a car in a new city, away from your friends, have a salary, more money than you know what to do with, at a big honking company with, you know, no past credentials aside from your bicycle. You've got a lot. Suppressing your sexuality. Suppressing sexuality, which wasn't even a conversation at that point, which I'm sure also helped trigger it. But he's like, you've got so much going on that most people, you know, moving away is like going to college, which I didn't do. And that is its own thing. You know, getting your first car when you're Right of passages. There are all sorts of like kind of delayed and tiered right of passages that I think that like most people go through. So it's more digestible. I did it all at once. Um, not to mention I was going through a severe identity crisis and, you know, actively trying to work out who Kit Carson was. And so he said, you need to balance out your life. Um, start riding your bicycle. I was like, what? Why? What's the point of that? And he says, just because you don't feel like it has meaning doesn't mean that it doesn't actively help your body. Your brain needs time to adjust and rest. And resting, although physically it may be difficult and tiresome and you don't have like aspirational goals of going to the Olympics, it actually helps your brain function and, you know, rid some of those demons that you're feeling. So I was like, okay, doctor, great, great, great. So, you know, following week, I, uh, I get on my bicycle and my brain just started to slowly, you know, it took the magic pill. It took like a year and a half to get back to feeling 100% normal and quite a bit of therapy. But, you know, I started to feel like myself again. So did you just back out of all of that hard work or it, it, the, something happened at Oakley, right? I mean, all of a sudden... Uh, Oakley was on the verge of laying, at the time, like half of the company, including my whole division. So I thought to myself, wow, this is how kismet, you know, it's perfect. I, my last day was November 2nd, 2015. And I spent that morning packing my desk and then taking my severance over to Sammy's camera on Fairfax in Los Angeles and buying a bunch of used photo gear. And in my mind, I thought to myself, you know, I can learn, actively learn the production storytelling process because it, you know, lights and crew and cameras and stuff and Taking a singular photo, in my mind, felt much easier to comprehend and um, something that I could do myself while I tried to learn this process on the side of TV. So I'm you know, taking photos and then my first job in television was January 2016 working on MasterChef. What I love about what you've done is I think you've come to realize, hey, you know what? 
Kit Carson is actually a pretty normal human being, um, but that you have something to share. And this is why I love what you're doing with these letters that you're writing to your 12-year-old self. I started writing letters to myself, you know, to try and talk about the people, places, events that made an impact on my queer journey for the better. And so the, the goal, Kit, is that you want other 12-year-olds to read it, or is it anybody maybe who, could, they could even be your age? It's, 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 it's just to what? It's, it's just to... So, so my, it's almost just like, you know, a, a, a guide to try and understand the types of people who you should involve and surround yourself with in order to create a balanced and healthy coming out process as best that you can. A lot of this, you know, the stories that I tell are about, you know, Ingenue, who is the first drag queen that I ever met and learned yeah. and befriended. You know, I'd never met a drag queen before and it kind of just says, all right, you need to put yourself out there with all the different types, you know, and colors of, you know, the, what it means of to... the LGBTQ rainbow right. and not just isolate yourself in, you know, whatever letter you identify with. I wanted to read this, this, this uh, part of the letter that you wrote to yourself mm -hmm. about what's gonna happen with your dad, mm. right? And you said, and, and I think that one of the biggest fears you'll have about coming out is you're gonna be afraid of losing your proud father. So yep. this is you talking to your 12 year old self. Correct. And the fear mm. that this dad who loves you and who's so proud of you, particularly as you become what national champion 16, but um, you're saying this and, and and how, how did that finish? You said you carried on talking about what was going to happen. You know, I think a lot of times in this, that, that story is very similar to what a lot of the fears that I felt about my sponsors and friends and family. And a lot of it kind of boiled down to, you know, people, people love you. It, it shouldn't matter based on who you love or what you are and what you do. You know, they are there for you. And mm. I think that I was so you know, towards the end of me before I came out was worried about jeopardizing those relationships with my friends and family um, and relationships that I worked so hard to create over time that it really doesn't matter. You were worried all of that was just going to strip away. And so you're saying to your 12 yeah. year old self, don't worry about it. Yeah. People will love you for who you are. Yeah. Don't worry about that yeah. part of it. I'm one of the lucky ones who thankfully has not had a, a moment of anyone in the world that I've created for myself that ended up saying, I don't accept this. I like no. the old Kit Carson, but yeah. I don't like the new one. Haven't had that you yet. You haven't had that. No. But you know there are others who have. Of course. Yeah. That happens every day. Too, every too often. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, you know, the reason why I decided to choose my 12-year-old self is it was before I started uh, cycling. Hmm. That's kind of when I was bottomed out. Right. You know, I was off medication. I was DNF student. I was not riding my bicycle. And so that was kind of before I see cycling as my next progression into, you know, a, a better life for myself. But I wanted to kind of catch that prior. Kid, um, a, there are 12-year-olds out there now who don't believe, you didn't know how your parents were going to react, but there are 12-year-olds out there now who might be pretty certain that their parents are not going to react the way that your parents did. Yeah. What do you say to that 12-year-old? My only piece of advice is the community, regardless of 
what your family or close friends' reactions are to you and how you, who you truly are yeah. and their reaction, the community will continue to live on. And so it is within our inherent responsibility as a minority group to continue to take care of one another. And so as painful as it may be through that exercise of coming out and say if your family is not accepting, you know, I can't be the one to say that, you know, it should be right and they're wrong and how dare they, because I, that is not my world. Mm. But what I can say is the only thing that you can't control in this situation is you. What you're saying is take solace in the, in the idea that there are people who will open up their arms and embrace you and, and be there for you. Um, I wouldn't, yes and no. I don't want to try and echo the same, you know, all the things that are put on those YouTube videos of, you know, it gets better because right. for a lot of people it doesn't. And I, I'd be wrong if I said that it always does. Um, but what I can say is the pain that you feel it doesn't last forever mm -hmm. and do your best, your very, very best to not try and put that onto someone else. Mm. It is the worst, you know, misery loves company. And the worst thing that we can do as a community is to take that negativity and the pain that is inflicted based on people and their small minds and try and create more self-harm on the community itself for making you feel the way that you feel for trying to tear down the people who had a, maybe an easier coming out process than you. Um, that in and of itself will create an environment that is more worse off for the people who have yet to come out as well. We have to, as a minority group, take care of one another. It is within our inherent responsibility because if we can't take care of one another and love one another, how are we like, how are we supposed to expect anyone else to feel the same? You know, taking so much care into the perception of others is something that I actively try and work on. We as a people, until that day comes where everyone is truly equal, we cannot wait for a few folks in a tiny building on the East Coast to tell out. us how we should love and yeah. love one another. It's our job to create and provoke that environment for one another, you know, outside of that. I can't, I can't unchange who I am and I wouldn't dare. Um, but you know, if I, for any parent, you know, say who reads these letters and stuff, I, I hope that it drives forward a little bit more empathy. Well said, uh, I love this quote. You say in these turbulent times where everything seems broken, you identify three types of people, those who make things happen, those who watch things happen and those who ask what happened you can you can you can really just choose that's one of the few choices you have in this world is your level of participation i can be a bigot and i can be racist and i can be misogynistic and i can be transphobic and it's it's just not right you're better than that we all are you know and it's uh it just takes a little courage and you know swallowing some pride to understand that yeah there's actually people who are not like you that also live here that also don't look like you that also don't love the same way that you do that also don't feel the same way 
that you do that. Like that's what's so magical and special about this country and what's so magical and special about, you know, this community is you get to explore and see and experience and feel all these different levels of, of, you know, consciousness. And, and I can, I plead for people to continue to explore that in whatever way they feel most comfortable. Do you think um, the world would be a better place when you're 50? You know, I, I, I don't know, but I can tell you that I will do everything within my power to try and do that. Yeah. You know, I, I stopped trying a long time ago to control everyone else because you can't. It's impossible. But I can control my actions and I can control the way that I interact with people in and out of the LGBT community. One of my favorite uh, Teddy Roosevelt quotes is, do what you can uh, with what you have where you are. And waking up every single day trying to change the world, that's impossible and you'll, you'll never feel happy. But if you try and just take micro bites and do everything bit by bit, just keep tacking off. One pedal strike at a time. Yeah. One pedal strike, you know, push the pedals faster, get a bigger gear. Just keep doing that over and over and over again. Yeah. That's all you can do. So Kit, uh, I was just going to end with a couple questions. Mm. If you were to take a long road trip and you could take anybody from any period in time in the car with you, three Mm. companions. Three companions? Yeah. I'd take my mom when she was in her 20s. Okay. Because she... Nobody has ever changed the age of the person, by the way, but that's cool. I feel like a lot... 20-year-old mom. You know, my mom, she's lived so many different lives and so many of the most wild, fun stories are of her when she was younger and... She was a wild child just like me, and I'd love to experience that with her. Okay, so 20-year-old mom. 20-year-old mom. Harvey Milk, Martin Luther King. That's an interesting car. You think your mother would behave herself? Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) I think... She might be a little disruptive. Yeah, we are the (laughs) Carsons. Disruptive is what we do. The last day on Earth, Kip, what would you do with that? You know, I, I, I'd probably do exactly what I'm doing now. I've worked incredibly hard to try and create a life for myself where it uh, feeds itself and it is fun and I don't have to question the validity of it. Um, and so now I'm, I'm doing it. I wake up and I get to take pictures and make TV shows and be around amazing people. Like what? I wouldn't train this life for anything. So why change it on my last day? Well, I, I think you're going to make the world a better place. You already have. And uh, I'm kind of keen to see what you're going to do. Likewise. I'm in the next 25 years or so. <laughs> thanks Thank you. For, thanks for talking to me. Appreciate, Appreciate it. Being here. Of course. You can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. And let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know. You might be my next guest. Don't forget, ticket before you kick it.